Well, have you enjoyed the morning so far? Because it's like 11.30 already. I was going to say, you only got a few minutes. I know. I know. I have to work quickly now. It does count against my time. Yeah. This is the introduction. Okay. It starts now. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there. Last week we stopped right in the middle of a verse because I said we have to talk about Paul's use of the word pas. The Greek word pas is usually translated all. Sometimes it's translated all kinds, all types in newer translations. Because Paul does use the word as a collective, he means everybody, all. Sometimes he uses it as all types or all kinds. And sometimes he uses it in a more limited sense where he's saying all of these or all of you. And we do the same thing. We do it every day. If there are a bunch of kids playing outside and some of them belong to a particular mom... And she tells them to all come in because it's dinner time. She doesn't mean for the whole world to come in. She's not saying everybody has to come in right now because it's dinner time. She's meaning all you who are the group I'm speaking to. But she'll use the word all. Paul does the same thing. Paul uses the word all sometimes in a limited sense. And we, because we try to be consistent with the Bible... We, because we try to take all of Pauline theology into account, we recognize that Paul does use the word all in various different ways. But if you are of the Arminian persuasion, then you're very quick to glom on to verses like verse 14, verse 15 of chapter 5. And you'll say, see right there, it says Christ died for all. And since Christ died for all, extrapolate from there then you have to create a theology that explains why it is that Christ died for all, but not everybody is saved. And so then you get into the theology of, well, if people don't get saved, since universal atonement is available, the people who don't get saved, it's their fault. They did something. They didn't choose him. They didn't make him Lord and Savior. They weren't good enough. They didn't exercise enough faith. That's the church that Tom and I come out of in California. They didn't exercise sufficient faith. Something within the person kept them from taking advantage of the universal atonement that's available to everybody. But the biblical story of salvation is that God chose people before the foundation of the world, wrote down their names in the Lamb's Book of Life, sent his son to the planet to die for those people. And you see it said time and time again that Christ gave himself for the church. That's a limited group. You see it time and time again when Jesus is explaining to the Pharisees why they can't hear him. He says, it's because you're not my sheep. It's not because they couldn't make a decision. It's not because they didn't have the intellectual aptitude to decide to make him Lord and Savior. It's because they're not his sheep. So Jesus walked around making those kinds of divisions all the time between those that he was actively saving and those that he was not. 
And that is the basis of Pauline theology. So you have to know all that theology as you approach verse 14 and verse 15, or you're going to get confused. Or Paul is really contradictory with himself. Paul is really schizophrenic and has developed a theology of God's sovereign grace in electing salvation, and then he chose to deny it when talking to the Corinthians. That's what you have to conclude. So let's start at verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we were in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. We read that last week, but I really want you to look very closely at what that verse is saying. Because the person who prepared us for eternal life and a new body and existence in joy with him forever, the one who did that is not us. It doesn't say you have prepared yourself for eternal glory. It doesn't say you picked eternal glory. You figured out eternal glory. You came to the intellectual ascent that you should get eternal glory. It doesn't say that. Paul's theology is very specific. It is God who prepared us for this very purpose. And then he gave us the spirit as a down payment, as a pledge. And as I said last week, that's the guarantee that all the rest of it is true. I was talking to Steve this morning before we began, and we were talking about how much we're looking forward to that whole new body thing. And then we started talking about the food in heaven. And I said, well, we're going to have access to the tree of life and to the trees of the garden of God. We're going to have great food to eat. And he said, I hope some of that fruit tastes like bacon. <laughs> It does. It produces a different fruit every month. And we're hoping that one of those months is bacon flavored. Yeah. <laughs> but look at what's really being declared. He, God, prepared us for this very purpose. In fact, the way that Paul structured the sentence is to talk about the preparation first so that you understand what he's talking about and who did it. He who prepared us for this very cause is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from this body to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, we always have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. 
And by the way, wouldn't that just be logical? I mean, if somebody came along and just offered you 10,000 bucks, wouldn't you try to meet any condition you could to be pleasing to that person? My friend. My friend. <laughs> I like everything about you all of a sudden. <laughs> Write the check. <laughs> so God starts with, it's God who prepared you for eternal glory. It's God who prepared you for the body you're going to get. It's God who has done all these things for you before the foundation of the world. Shouldn't your ambition then be to be pleasing to him? That's just a, a fair exchange, a fair reaction. Therefore, also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Told you last week, Bama's seat, we talked about the difference between that and the white throne judgment. That each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that means the reverence of God, knowing that we fear and revere God, we persuade men, but we are made manifest opened up to God. And I hope that we are being made manifest also in your conscience. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Hang on to that phrase, because in a moment he's going to say, from now on, know nobody after the flesh. Don't look after the outward appearance. Look at the inward person. See if they belong to God. See if they are saved. See if they are redeemed. That's the thing we're after. Steve, again, this is twice I've mentioned you this morning. Get out of my head. Steve, this morning at prayer time, one of the things he said is, we have nothing in common. We men standing in that room holding hands and praying together that we come from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different histories. And yet the one thing that unifies us is the blood of Christ. And as long as we find somebody who has the blood of Christ on them, that's our family. That's who we love. I don't care about color. I don't care about ethnicity. I don't care about race. When I look at somebody, I'm looking for one thing, the blood of Christ. And if that's on them, that's my family right away. That's my brother. That's my sister regardless because they have been saved by the same grace of God that I am dependent on to save me. And if I'm happy about the fact that God has saved me, how can I not be happy about the fact that God has saved them? So hang on to that phrase. There are those who take pride in appearance, how things look on the outside. But they're not paying attention to what's in the heart. For if we are crazy, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all died. Okay, now let's talk about what Paul is not saying in the second half of that verse. Did everybody on the planet, if Christ died for everybody, 
did everybody then reckon themselves dead in Christ? Did that happen? No. No. No, Christ died for a limited all. He died for the Corinthians that Paul is writing to, and he's going to name them by name in a moment. Well, not by name. He's not going to go down a list. But he's going to say, oh, you Corinthians. He's very clear about who he's talking to. He's very clear about who he's writing to. And unfortunately, over the history of the church, there is a habit among churchmen to take everything in the Bible and assume it applies to you personally. Just Old, New Testament, any prophecy, whatever it says, it's about me. And there is also a very popular theology that advances that idea. And instead of looking at the particular groups or the particular people that the writers were writing to or the prophets were prophesying to or God was speaking to and then taking the words that are said in the context of who they're said to then applying them appropriately. Instead, they just assume that you can open the Bible to any verse, any chapter, or whatever it says, it applies to you. And so people end up with the idea that Christ died for all universally. What that does, as soon as you say Christ died for everybody universally, you have then said, and his death was ineffective because it didn't actively save anybody. What it did was it made salvation available if you would just avail yourself of the availability of it. But did it save anyone? No, it just made salvation available, so you have to activate it. You have to do something. You have to choose. But as far as Christ's sacrifice, it saved no one. That's the absolute opposite of what the Bible says and what we believe and preach here. We say that God sent Christ to save particular people and that he fully, utterly accomplished it. When he was hanging on the cross and he said, it is finished, it was actually finished. Amen. He had done the work he came here to do. And Paul's about to argue that. And because Paul is about to argue that, we know that when Paul says all, he doesn't mean all men. He means all the people in the Corinthian church. Regardless of high estate or low estate or rich or poor or any color, any ethnicity, doesn't matter. Christ died for all of you because remember what he just said and what he's about to bring up, that we don't look after the outer man. We're not to look at somebody's high estate or their low estate and pity them. And we're not to look at somebody's color, race, ethnicity. We're supposed to be looking at the inward man. And so I argue, and I think completely biblically, I argue that Christ simply did not die universally, but that his death and the atoning work and the sacrifice was done on purpose, and he accomplished exactly what he came here to accomplish. And if that's the case, then I can say with great boldness that I'm saved. But if he died universally and is waiting for people to make up their mind, I can't say I'm saved because I don't know. I might be saved today and lost tomorrow. But if Christ did the saving, then all my sins, all my history, everything that I did against God, 
Every way that I have offended him over the years is all forgiven because Christ offered a perfect sacrifice. A perfect savior who sacrificed perfectly and perfectly saved the people he came to perfectly save. That's the theology of the Bible. That's not the popular theology, but it is what the Bible says. And there's great comfort in that. And I'm greatly comforted by that. Because I know where I've been and I know what I've done. And you know where you've been and you know what you've done. And if it wasn't for Christ's perfect salvation, you have no hope. If he was keeping score, you have no hope. Which is why I love the verses like he's cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. He's not ever going to bring it up again. It's gone. I love the fact that Paul's theology is that when Christ returns the second time, he's not coming back with regard to sin. Because he already came for the sin question. And if he did not fully, completely satisfy the sin question then when he came back, he'd still have to deal with the sin thing. But if he fully, utterly accomplished the salvation of the people he came to save, then when he comes back, it's not with regard to sin. He's not coming back in judgment. He's coming back to get his bride. He's coming back to get his church and take us to that new body and bacon thing that we're so looking forward to. I'm not going to give up on that. For the love of Christ constrains us, controls us, having concluded this that one died for all, therefore all died. Now I'm going to import a little bit more of Pauline theology so that you can understand what he's getting at here because he's kind of speaking in shorthand. He's saying that all those who belong to Christ. Christ's love constrains us in such a way that we consider ourselves dead to our flesh, dead to our lusts, dead to our wants, and that everything in our life redounds to the glory of God, and that everything in our life and our behavior and the way we speak and the way that we have boldness as we talk about Christ all comes from the place of knowing that the love of Christ is constraining us The salvation that Christ has proffered is full and complete. And when he died, we died to ourselves. Is that true of everybody on the planet? No. No, it's just not. So therefore, I conclude that he's not talking about a universal all. Verse 15. And he died for all that they who live Those who have eternal life, those that have the down payment of the Holy Spirit inside them. We who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So again, he's saying the consistent theology of God chose us, God saved us. When Christ died, we died to ourselves and the entire rest of our lives now belongs to him. And our goal in all things is to be pleasing to him. Yes, sir. What if you don't feel like you've died to yourself? It's a constant battle, isn't it? I mean, I'll be the first person to say it's a constant battle. And, and I can answer your question, by the way. 
me walk over here as if I'm stalking you. Can you restate the question? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, he said, what if you feel like you're not dying to yourself? Well, so it says we have died. It says we have died, and what if you don't? Tense, yeah. And for all sort of thing. Yeah. And what if you don't reckon yourself dead? Yeah. I think that's and Paul uses that word in another passage. He talks about reckon yourself dead. So we start with the conclusion that we have died to our flesh, died to ourselves, and our lives is about the glory of God. Are you going to do that perfectly? No. Are you going to do it constantly? No. That's why we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's why when we fall, we have an attorney arguing our case in the court of heaven. So not only is he a perfect Savior who saved us 2,000 years ago, but he's a perfect savior who's still saving us actively. And in the places where we goof up, mess up, sin, offend God, he's there advocating for us. Right, and it, and it is, if I can say that. Go right ahead. I was talking to Ming Shaw about this earlier in the week. There's all these paradoxes in the Bible. You're dead in your sin. Christ raises to life. Uh, you died with Christ, but yet reckon yourself dead, right? Yeah. If you're dead with Christ, how can you reckon yourself dead? Because you're dead, right? Yeah. So there's all these paradoxes. And you know, the Eastern mind, especially when you get into Eastern philosophy and everything else, the Eastern mind is very comfortable with paradox. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not. And the Bible, you're right, is full of things like, if you want the, the chief seat, take the low seat. Right. right. If you or, be first. Be last. Yeah. And he's not knocking being first. No. He said, if you want it, here's how you get it. Be last. Yeah. And how do you live forever? By dying. How do you get? By giving. I mean, the whole Bible is full of those kinds of paradoxes. But I think as Paul continues to drive this home to Corinth and to us, by bringing it up as often as he does, he keeps expressing the necessity of reckoning ourselves dead on a daily basis, hour by hour, reckoning ourselves as dead to our flesh and alive in Christ. I don't go the places I used to go. I don't do the things I used to do. But I still do some stuff that I wish I hadn't. Yeah. So it's a day by day, hour by hour reckoning. You know what David did after God had promised to make him a house? The king of king yeah. to come. He went after Bathsheba. He went after Bathsheba. Yeah. He killed exactly. her husband. He married her. Yeah. And God didn't take away the kingship that he had given him. Because he kept his word. So, yes, we can find many, many examples in the Bible. But you're right, that's a good example. God who keeps his word, having saved his own, he loved them to the end. And it is that love of God and it is that love of Christ that actively constrains us. Here, you're not going to hurt Ming Chao, right? <laughs> Ming, what did I say? Ming Chao. I'm sorry. I said Ming Chao. I'm sorry. That was... Ming. You're not going to hurt Ming, right? Why? Oh, wait. Wait, 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 wait. We might need an intervention here. She carries. Yeah. I know 
Okay, it's self-preservation, fair enough. But you're not going to hurt Ming because you love Ming. And that's the overriding emotion that keeps you from wanting to hurt her. Okay, same deal with God. The love of Christ constrains us. The love of God constrains us. Our love for Christ, our love for God constrains our behavior so that we want to always be pleasing to him. We want to not ever hurt the relationship. Are we going to as fleshly humans? You betcha. But that's not an excuse to do it. It just is evidence that we really, really need a savior. If we ever reach the point where we were perfect in and of ourselves, we don't need somebody else to save us. But if we are a living, walking, talking, daily example of our own depravity, we better have a savior. Make sense? Okay. Good question. I like that question. And uh, Wolfgang, did you hear all that? <laughs> no. <laughs> For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So, he died and rose again for whatever people group belongs to the all group. When Paul has used the word all, all, he has just defined the group that is within all. It's the group of people that Christ died for and resurrected for who are actively trying to please him who are constrained by the love of God. Is that everybody? No, that's not everybody. It's self-evident. It's axiomatic. It's not everybody. But for those who he did die for and did raise on their behalf, those are the people who want to be pleasing to him, and so they reckon themselves dead. Therefore, now I think we can understand why he's going to say what he's going to say in 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. If we started going around this room and just talking about where you've been, what you've done, and we judged you on that basis. Yeah, that, that was not a happy face. That, what was that? You went, yeah. But you know what? After the flesh, that's all we got. After the flesh, all I can know about you is your history, your past, what you've done. That's all I can know about you. And I'm going to judge you based on that. I'm going to decide if I like you based on what I know about what you've done so far. And Paul says, don't do that. Now, people who don't have the spirit of God, can they look on the inner men? No, they can't. All they can see is the outer man. That's why sometimes we Christians get misapplied or misunderstood or misjudged. Or It's because the fleshly, sinful man, not having the Holy Spirit of God, has no capability of seeing us in the inner man. 
But we who have the Spirit of God have a common Spirit of God. And because it's a common Spirit of God, and what I mean by common is not like, not rare, it's very common. What I mean is we have it in common. We all have the Spirit of God. And therefore, we could look on each other and even with our differences and even with our past and even with our mistakes, we can look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have that capability unless we have the Holy Spirit of God working within us. And Paul gives us the directive from now on, don't look on the outer man. From now on, recognize no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him no longer after the flesh. So therefore, if any man is in Christ, as a result of Christ's death, resurrection, If any man is in Christ, he is then a new creature. And the old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. I could use every single one of you in this room as an example. Not Danielle, because I don't know her history that well. But I'm going to find out. (laughs) I'm gunning for you. Every one of us. This is part of what the born-again thing means. It means that if Christ has died for you, and if he has resurrected you, then he doesn't look on you after the flesh. And that's sort of an answer to your question before, that God is not looking on you after the flesh. He died for that flesh. He died for that sin. He resurrected because of that sinful flesh. And when he looks on you, he doesn't see you. He sees his son who you belong to, who redeemed you perfectly. And as a consequence, we can say about you that it's all new now. Before you were redeemed, it was all flesh. Before you were redeemed, it was all God condemning you. And you were straight on your way to hell and to use David Morris's phrase, and happy of it. And didn't know the difference. Do you know why sinners don't repent of their sin? You know why fleshly people don't repent of their sin? They enjoy the sin. Even deeper. They can't. They're dead spiritual. Yeah, and therefore, they don't know they're in sin. They have no idea they're offending God, and if they are, they don't care. It's not even part of their mental makeup, which is why people of the world can do us so much damage. It's why people of the world can say horrible things and why most of them are typing on YouTube on my videos. Anyway, that was a little aside. Human beings left to themselves cannot repent, cannot care about the things of God, cannot love God, cannot be loved by God. I say cannot because Christ was very specific in saying that it is the love of God on his people that constrains us. And he doesn't constrain everybody. And you get to the book of 2 Thessalonians and you read that God is going to give some people a strong delusion so that they're going to believe a lie and they're going to be condemned. Okay, well, that's not the same kind of love I ended up with. That's a different thing. So that's, let me modify that so you understand when I say God does not love or Jesus did not pray for everybody. 
It's always a limited specific group. And if he's done that for you, if he has saved you, if he has redeemed you, if he raised for you, if he's advocating for you, then your love for him and his love for you is sufficient to get you through whatever you got to go through in this life, whatever it is. Now, all things are from God. All things are from God. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Who is the actor in verse 18? God is the actor. Yeah, the actor in that verse is God. Where in that verse are you? You're the one being reconciled. You're the passive recipient of God doing the reconciling work. And God, who knew full well that if it was up to you to get to him, you can't do it. You can't storm the gates of heaven. You can't climb all the way to heaven. The tallest building on the planet's not even going to get you close. You can't get to God to plead your case. The only way it's going to be okay between you and God is he has to come to you. And he has to do the reconciling. Because you can't do the reconciling. You have already, get this right, you have already damaged the relationship. You have already hurt the relationship between you and God. And you don't have the ability to make it right again. You can't do anything. So he did it. By astounding grace, he did it. He reconciled people to himself. And did he reconcile absolutely everybody to himself? No. Otherwise, we'd have to conclude that absolutely everybody ends up saved. Universalism would be automatic. But you've got Jesus himself walking around talking to the Pharisees about their blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which he says is not going to be forgiven. Not in this age, not in the age to come. It's never going to be forgiven. Okay, there's one person I found who's not saved. And if I can find one person who's not saved by the atonement of Christ, then I have to conclude it's a limited group that gets saved. Does that make sense? Am I being logical? And so the very fact that God would save particular people fill us with his spirit as a down payment of everything else he's going to do, makes us into new creatures. The things that we were, the things that we did, those things have passed, and now we're new creatures in Christ, and so we don't look after the outer man, we look after the inner man. That's what we're looking for in people, and therefore Paul could say that God has reconciled us. He's the actor. He reconciled us to himself. And i got to ask another question. If God is the one who did all the reconciling, do you think he missed any part? I mostly reconciled you. We were pretty good. 98% of the way there, you just got to kick in your part. Just do yours. And if you can do that 2%, man, you're in. No, because God did the reconciling. We can say with great confidence and boldness, we're reconciled. Because he did the work. And how did he do it? Through Christ. And that's kind of where this all began. Through the fact that Christ died and resurrected for particular people. And since his work was a perfect work, and he said it's accomplished, and God has reconciled us, what else is there for you to do? What do you add to that? 
What'd you say, Leon? You grow in his spirit. Oh, thankful. Let's be thankful. I'm sorry, I thought you were Leon. Yeah. Oh, I, no. <laughs> yeah, we just grow in our thankfulness. That's all we do. We grow in our love. We grow in our devotion to God. We grow in our boldness to, to tell people of the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says we've been given that ministry. We're out there telling men and women, boys and girls, sinners all, we're telling them, be reconciled to your God. The ministry of reconciliation is what Christianity is all about. And far too much of modern Christianity is the ministry of condemnation. Of thundering down from pulpits and telling you how wrong you are. And what you got to do to get saved. And how you got to clean yourself up. And how you got to be good enough for God to accept you. None of that is true. He did the work. He reconciled his people He sent his son, his son died, his son raised again, and his son is advocating for us. So what, I'm going to add my measly little works? I got something good I'm going to add? No. Dwayne, you had something? Having said all that, in verse 20, is this like another paradox? So having said that Christ causes it all, then he begs them on behalf of Christ be reconciled. Yes. Like That is the ministry of reconciliation, yeah, that we are begging men to be reconciled. But you know what? Hold that thought, and we'll get to verse 20 in like three verses. No reading ahead. That's the rule here. Now, all things, verse 18. Now, all things are from God. Now, all these things are from God. Now, all these things. What things is he talking about? What things? All of it. The spirit, our love of Christ, the sufficient atonement, the death, the resurrection, all of that is from God. So you add nothing. Now, all these things are from God. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ to give us or and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, now he's going to define it. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and then he committed to us the word of reconciliation. Again, look very closely at what Paul is saying. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Do we need to talk about the word cosmos at that point? Do we need to talk about the word world there? Because Paul uses the word world several different ways, and in this context, he's talking about not Jews only, but also Gentiles, also people of every tongue and tribe and nation, and not Jews exclusively. Or you have to conclude that God is reconciling everybody on the planet to himself and everybody's saved and you're back at universalism. And if you can find even one person who's not saved, then your universalistic views disappear. So he can't be saying that. He is saying people of every kindred, tribe, tongue, nation. Again, don't look after the outer man. Don't look at the fleshly man. Look at the inward man. Don't worry if they're a person of high status or low status or a person of any color, race, creed, a person who's 
come to Christ with, with just a horrible background and just all kinds of sin, the kind of person you wouldn't want to move in next to you because your grass would die, the kind of person that you're just not comfortable being around. If Christ saves that person, then that person has been saved by Christ, and you're to look at the inner man, not the outer man. And so we are telling people, you can be reconciled to God. I have no qualm with that. I have no problem with saying, I'll tell you the gospel. I'll tell you what God did. He reconciled men and women, boys and girls, sinners to himself. And if people can hear that and respond to that and embrace that, then I have good confidence that God is in the process of reconciling them. But we don't know who God has reconciled. So we tell Everybody, I tell anybody indiscriminately who will sit and listen because they will make their status, their eternal status, known real quickly. Because you can tell people about Christ and they run out of the room screaming. That's right. And so it's pretty clear that there's not a lot of reconciliation going on right there, at least not right at that moment. But I have sat down and talked to people about the reconciling work of God and they have wept before me. Because they understood that their sinful past was not going to catch up with them when it was judgment time. And it is such a relief. It is such a wonder and a marvel to them that they sit down and cry about it. Okay, I'm going to say some reconcilings happening there. They and their God are being reconciled and I will call people to be reconciled to God. That is the ministry of reconciliation. But then if they stick around me long enough, I'm then going to tell them this was all God's doing. This was God who did all of that. He reconciled you. You didn't reconcile yourself to God. He reconciled you. And to anybody who gets that, to anybody who understands God's electing grace, to anybody who understands the before the worlds were formed stuff, finding that out, and knowing that God, who did all that, loved you enough to save you, to forgive you, to reconcile you, that just gets sweeter and sweeter. Amen. That just gets better and better. Amen. And people keep coming back saying, tell me again. <laughs> tell me again. I want to hear it again. Why aren't you sick and tired? I've only got one story. I, I'm, I've been doing this for 15 years. Anybody who wants to check the archive, and you have... Can, can just, they know, I keep saying this over and over again. And you would think that at some point people would go, okay, God, I got it. I got it, Jim. I know what you're saying. You got anything else for me? And then they'd go somewhere else because I don't have anything else for people. But the people of God seem to love to hear it. Sheep food for sheep. And between last Sunday and this Sunday, you messed up the relationship again. And between last Sunday and this Sunday, he reconciled you again. And the more you know that, the more you love him. And the more you love him, the more you live to be pleasing to him. See how this all works? This is the international hand motion for you. See how this all works? It's also jazz hands. I want credit for that. Therefore, if any man is in Christ... 
He is a new creature. The old things passed away. And behold, new things have come. But all things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Do I need to yell that louder? <laughs> not counting their trespasses against them. Woohoo is right. Not counting their trespasses against us because if God kept track of sins and trespasses, how many people in here could have any confidence when they leave the planet? Death would be the scariest thing that could happen because you're going right into the judgment of God and you're going right into outer darkness and you're going to the place where the worm never sleeps, where the fire's never quenched. You have nothing to look forward to but the judgment of God. Unless he's actively reconciling you to himself and not counting your trespasses against you. And you know what? Because we're fleshly human beings, we keep counting people's trespasses against them. And that's because we keep looking at the outer man. And we're called to look at the inward man. And if we're looking at the inward person, and we recognize that Christ has redeemed this person and forgiven this person and that Christ is not counting the trespasses against them, then who are we to count the trespasses against them? Right? right. I mean, if God has saved them, they're saved. Right? right? But so much of modern religion is keeping track of and accusing people for their trespasses instead of bringing them the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation is about God reconciling people to himself and not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the very word of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. It's like we're being sent out by Christ to carry this message that reconciliation is available, that reconciliation is happening in its God's work. So we as ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating you through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the verse that he was asking about a moment ago. And that is exactly what we do. We tell people the gospel and we beg people to be reconciled to God. Are there any mistakes in that process? Will anybody who doesn't have the capability suddenly decide to come to God? No. Nope, nope. nope not going to happen. Somebody who has been saved, redeemed, blood-bought, somebody who has been chosen before the foundation of the world... Will they come to God when somebody tells them the gospel and says, be reconciled to your God? Yeah, eventually they will. Sometimes it's not right now. Sometimes it's eventually, but they're going to happen. But they're going to happen. But it's going to happen. They're going to be reconciled to their God. And so we, who have been given the ministry of reconciliation, we beg men, be reconciled to your God. That is part and parcel of the gospel ministry. 
and I do it all the time, and I don't see a conflict between the ministry, which is not the doing, and I guess that's where the paradox doesn't quite apply here, is because it's God who's doing the actual reconciling, and we know that. We know that it's God who's doing the the conciliatory work of making it all okay again. But then, because we're reconciled, we're given a job to go tell people and beg them to be reconciled to their God. We're not reconciling them. If it said, now go out and reconcile people, then I would see a paradox or a conflict. But if the instruction is to go tell people about the reconciliation, well, then I don't have a problem with it. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Am I talking logic here? Yes. Okay. I got three people with me. (laughs) Everything I've said this morning can be wrapped up in this verse. Everything that Paul is writing sort of culminates at verse 21. He's been building this whole theological argument on purpose so that you're going to reach this moment at verse 21. He made, that's God made, Christ who knew no sin... To be sin on our behalf. Now, he used that same phrase earlier when he said he died and he resurrected on our behalf. He's using the same phrase here to let us know how it is that he accomplished this. He died and he resurrected. So he became sin on our behalf. Look at the second half of the verse. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, now we're back to Mark's question from a half hour ago. Yeah, I know. Point at him. Yeah, it's him. Yeah. So how do we become the very righteousness of Christ? And that will help you understand the first half of the sentence. How do we become the righteousness of Christ? Our works? Our doing? Our keeping the law? Our having a, a perfect background? Our making sure that everything we do is spotless and... No, you get the idea. No, we don't have the ability to do that. We can't be the righteousness of Christ in and of ourselves. So where are we getting what Paul just said? We become the righteousness of Christ. How? Well, it has to be by imputation. It has to be God putting the righteousness of Christ on us. And now you start to feel the all things new part. That's new. That's new. I only know one thing. I know how to be wretched. I know how to be sinful. I pretty much got that down to a science. I know how to be a bad guy. And yet, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me. The Spirit of God has inhabited me. And that's new. So we're told... Don't look after the old man. That's the old part. That's the forgiven part. That's the part that Christ died for. But the new man, the new man with the spirit of God and the righteousness of Christ imputed to his account, well, that's really new. That's the newness of what God is doing via the new covenant. So now we can understand the first part of that verse He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. And the only reason I'm stressing that is because if you go online right now, there is a great deal of discussion about what that means. To what degree or in what way did Christ become sin? 
And there are even people who say that he actively became the sinner, that he had every disease that men have ever have, that God placed on him the wretchedness of us all, and in that way he became sin for us. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is God imputed our sin to him exactly the same way that he's imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. And now I can finally answer your question again, Mark. So, if when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sinful man that was already placed on Christ, if what he sees is the righteousness of Christ that's been placed on us, and whatever sin we do has already been forgiven, covered, all of that. Let me say one more thing. I've said a lot of stuff here, but I'm not saying sin doesn't have consequences. That's not what I'm saying at all. No, anybody who's lived any length of time, sin has consequences. It'll come back and bite you. It's not a good idea. But the consequences, the human consequences, the fleshly consequences, the worldly consequences of sin, that happens as a result of our own rebellion and the natural outgrowth of our rebellion here on planet Earth. But God's not judging us based on that. He's judging us based on the righteousness of Christ that he has already imputed to us. And I have to go back to my original opening statement. Did he impute the righteousness of Christ to everybody? No. No. How come only three people can answer that question? (laughs) We're just going slow. I'm standing here preaching my fool little head off. And let me tell you something. I don't know if you can tell it, but I know it for a fact. I'm going to try not to cry again. But God met me here at the pulpit today. That made me feel good. Because I got to deal with him. I don't mean I got to deal with him. I mean I have a deal with him. Yeah. I have a deal with him. This is dead honest. I've told him over and over again the first time I stand here and he doesn't meet me here, I quit. I'm just that cut and dry about it. And he met me here again. So all glory to God. (laughs) So he made him. (laughs) So you're going to see me next Sunday, right? Unless, of course, you all rebel and storm out the doors. He made him who knew no sin, that's Christ, he imputed all of our sin onto him, all of our sin onto him, all of our sin, all of of our sin onto him, all of it. So you don't get to pick your pet sin and say all of it but that. You don't get to pick your, your pet rebellion and go, well, he paid for all of it except this. All of our sin he placed on Christ because Christ is a perfect Savior who saves perfectly. He who knew no sin did that, became sin, imputed to him so that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. Now that's a legal standing. That is the way God sees us. That's the way we've been adjudicated, that we have the righteousness of Christ on us. Even though sometimes we don't feel like very righteous people, that's a done deal. He's already done that. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account. And that becomes the reason for everything else Paul has very logically said this morning about not looking after the outer man, 
but looking after the inner man. We're looking for the reconciled sheep of God. We're looking for the blood of Christ, and we're worshiping and loving a perfect Savior, and that is what constrains us and why we live the way we do. Isn't that a good argument? Isn't that a great passage? I love that passage. Okay, now I shudder to ask. I'm, I'm backing away slowly. Are there any questions? Okay, yes, sir. I draw great comfort from knowing that Christ has removed all of my sins because I have committed far worse sins since I became a believer at age 14 than prior to that time. And they were all future sins when he died. He removed them all. And the ones that I will still commit going forward. A perfect Savior. Wouldn't it be tragic if there was some sin that, that he didn't cover? You'd live your life in mortal fear of maybe doing that one thing. And as soon as you knew that one thing, you'd have to do it. You'd just be drawn to it. You know, every little kid, all you got to do is say, don't eat that. You cannot have that cookie, and the one thing they want is that cookie. That, I can answer that. What about blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Christ didn't die for them. If he had died for them, that would have been a forgivable sin. But he knew he wasn't going to die for them, which is why he could say, that thing you just did is never going to be forgiven. There are people in this room right now who can say that in some point in their life, they blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And that is not the unforgivable sin. That's the sin that wasn't forgiven. It wasn't forgiven in the case of the Pharisees, but it's forgiven on the part of the people of God, no matter what the mistake, no matter what the sin, no matter what the rebellion. He's a perfect Savior. Does that make sense? Sense is made. Pardon me? So sense is made. Oh, sense is made. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? Sense is made. I, I thought it was some new word. I had no idea what... Sense is made. What does that mean? Sense is made. Sense is made. Sense is made. Sense is made. I no idea. <laughs> so all I'm saying over and over and over and over and over again, and then we can say goodbye to the Internet congregation, all I'm saying over and over again is grace, 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 Grace. And so we're grace people. We should be gracious to each other because God's been remarkably gracious to us. So grace, grace, grace. That's all I'm saying. That's all I got for you. All right? Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.